On this edition of the program, it's all about Georgia, the indictment against Donald Trump. We run down why this is a RICO case, what the state has to prove, and how this indictment dovetails with a fascinating election security story that I heard at DEF CON. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, August 17th. It's your old boy, Justin Robert Young from Austin, Texas, returned from Las Vegas, returned from DEFCON, and it's good. It's good that I went to DEFCON. I got to see one talk at the Vote Hacking Village, and it turns out I was doing prep for this show. That in a second. Obviously, the only thing that is happening in politics right now is the Donald Trump indictment in Georgia. What looks to be the final of the four cases that had been brewing, they all wind up hatching within six months. That to the Trump people is not a coincidence. But for us, it just means a hot, hot summer. And quite possibly the replacement of a competitive primary season with. Court TV. Unfortunately, for those who have been a fan of our debate prep series, we were supposed to do Tim Scott debate prep. This episode, we will instead do it next episode. We will do a double feature of debate prep unless more insanity breaks in. Where do we start? This is by far the most detailed indictment of Donald Trump. This is by far the most voluminous indictment of Donald Trump, weighing in at 98 pages. This is what they refer to in the legal profession as a chonker, certified chode. I have consulted a legal expert to help me understand these charges. His name is Doug, and I created him in (laughs) ChatGPT. I I just said, your name is Doug. You are a fully unbiased and sober legal expert, specifically in Fulton County, Georgia. And so when I refer to the law here, if there is any discrepancy, I don't think there will be. But if there's a mild discrepancy, if you are indeed a Southern lawyer based in Georgia, then please feel free to email me. But I'm going to do my best to go through the most common charges that were levied in this indictment. One thing to point out is that this is a RICO case. RICO is a racketeering statute that was designed to prosecute The mob. Essentially, the theory is this. If a criminal organization sufficiently, through their own competence, can isolate the top 
of the conspiracy from anything that happens, you know, where, where people are getting their hands dirty, then there's no way to take out the organization. You're only going to be putting people who are lower on the totem pole in jail. They will then be replaced. And the reason why the criminal activity is happening will remain untouched. And so Rico cases were put together so you could charge the top of the organization with the crimes of the people at the bottom. I will say that this is a particularly controversial strategy when it goes beyond the initial statement of how it was intended. Oftentimes, RICO cases, far from the godfather-esque criminal enterprises that we would initially have known them for, are now for street gangs. And this same district attorney brought a RICO case against YSL, young stoner life, young slime life, the many ways that it can be referred to. That is the record label that Fulton County says is a gang co-founded by rap superstar Young Thug. This was one year ago. Hip-hop superstar and Atlanta native Young Thug making an appearance in a Fulton County courtroom Tuesday. His first appearance in front of a judge comes less than 24 hours after authorities raided the rapper's Buckhead home. Channel 2 was the only station there Monday as investigators arrested the 30-year-old. Young Thug, whose real name is Jeffrey Lamar Williams, is one of 28 defendants charged in a sweeping 56-count indictment against the criminal street gang Young Slime Life, also known as YSL. The charges ranging from conspiracy to violate the Georgia criminal racketing law, murder, armed robbery, and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, also named Sergio Kitchens, who performs under the name Gunna. As of Tuesday afternoon, the rap star had not yet surrendered to authorities. My number one focus is targeting gangs, and there's a reason for that. They are committing conservatively 75 to 80 percent of all of the violent crime that we are seeing within our community. That is Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. You will be hearing a lot about because she, again, filed this Trump case as well. As we are recording this, Young Thug is still in jail while that case continues to process. Rico cases are notoriously slow. The other name mentioned in there, Gunna, he's not only out because he made a plea deal. He also has one of the biggest hits currently on Spotify. But this is not. Rap prosecution, rap prosecution, rap prosecution. This is politics, politics, politics. So let's go through, first and foremost, what you need to prove in a RICO case. Because there are specific things that you do need to prove for this to go well. All right. So I asked Doug, what is the burden of proof for RICO in Fulton County? Doug says, The Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act is a federal law, but many states, including Georgia, have adopted their own versions of RICO to address organized crime at the state level. In Fulton County, prosecutors under state RICO law follow Georgia's RICO Act's provisions. In a criminal RICO case, the burden of proof, as with all criminal cases, rests on the prosecution. The standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. That means for a defendant to be found guilty, the jury or judge in a bench trial must believe, based on the evidence presented, that there are no reasonable doubts in their mind about the defendant's guilt. Doug continued, 
regardless of its uh, criminal or civil case, RICO charges are complex and involve proving various elements, including establishing a pattern of racketeering activity. It's crucial for anyone involved in such case, whether it be a plaintiff, defendant, or otherwise, to consult with a qualified attorney who has experience in RICO matters. Well, Doug, we're not facing them ourselves, but if anybody in the Trump orbit is using ChatGPT to create their own Doug, that would be appreciative. Now, that I found to be particularly illuminating because one of the things that got a lot of attention and a lot of press about the Young Thug case is that in that indictment, they quoted extensively the lyrics from Young Thug and Gunna songs, specifically those that advocated for violence and those that advocated for violence against rival gangs for which violence was eventually perpetuated. So I asked Doug again, what does establishing a pattern of racketeering activity mean? How long or how intense would that pattern have to be? And so Doug said this, as for the pattern, the law requires at least two acts of racketeering activity within a 10-year period. This doesn't mean two separate schemes or conspiracies. Rather, two acts can be part of the same scheme. And continuity, the acts should be related and pose a threat of continued criminal activity. The U.S. Supreme Court has elaborated on this, suggesting that a RICO pattern requires both relationship and continuity between the acts. Acts are related if they have similar purposes, results, participants, victims, or methods of commission, or otherwise interrelated by distinguishing characteristics, and continuity can be either close-ended or open-ended. Close-ended continuity refers to a series of related predicates extending over a substantial period, often several years. Open-ended continuity is about activity that poses a threat of continuing criminal conduct beyond the period during which the predicate acts are performed. And these are Georgia-specific RICO statutes. Georgia statutes requires the pattern of racketeering, which means committing at least two in, in incidents of racketeering conduct that have the same or similar intents, results, accomplices, victims, methods of commission, or otherwise interrelated by the distinguishing characteristics. And while the Georgia RICO Act doesn't specifically say that there needs to be a certain time frame, the act should be related, not isolated to establish a pattern. And so just like Young Thug's lyrics, Fannie Willis in this indictment uses Donald Trump's tweets. This is something that you've seen a lot if you paid attention to some of the conservative pushback to this indictment. She is criminalizing speech. This was also something that you saw a lot about the Young Thug trial. We will see exactly how that pans out. But let's get into some of the charges that I read the most. And here's the first one. False statements and writings and concealment of facts. According to Doug, this law often comes into play when individuals lie to government officials or falsify official documents. It can be applied in a variety of situations, including but not limited to falsifying information on applications, submitting false reports, or making false statements during official investigations. Now, in my extraordinarily amateur opinion, when it comes to the legal matters of this case, it does seem that there will be a burden of proof to discern 
What is a false statement and writing and concealment of facts, a.k.a. OCGA 161020? And what is just a big, fat, hairy lie, which is protected by federal law? In Act 24 of the largest count, Rudy Giuliani is charged with this for saying that 96,000 mail-in ballots were counted during the 2020 election in Georgia and that the Dominion voting system equipment had been hacked in Michigan. He's later charged with the same crime for his uh, address to the Georgia House of Representatives. So they are saying that by way of Rudy Giuliani saying this stuff to officials, that qualifies as a false statement or writing. And again, uh, 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 this is probably the charge that I saw the most. So when we are looking to to count all of these uh, uh, charges, this is, to my knowledge, the most common one. In Act 113, Donald Trump gets hit with this for his Raffensperger call. Everybody knows this. It got leaked the day before the elections, the special elections, the runoff elections in Georgia in January 5th of that year. And Donald Trump saying that the election was stolen to Brad Raffensperger is a crime, according to this indictment. And then in one of the stranger things that happened in this indictment, Kanye West's publicist, Travion Cuddy, gets hit with this particular charge for speaking with Ruby Freeman. Ruby Freeman was a election worker at State Farm Arena. She became the center of a lot of conservative conspiracies that she was caught red-handed on tape, miscounting votes and such. Well, there comes a point in this indictment when Travion Cuddy, who is one of many people to try and get in touch with Ruby Freeman, does do just that. And it happens at a Cobb County court or a Cobb, a Cobb County Sheriff's office. And the meeting was recorded on body cam by a Cobb County official. Cuddy insinuates to Freeman that she is in danger. We're going to play a little bit of that sound right now. I cannot say what specifically will um, take place. I just know that it will disrupt your freedom and I'm just going to take the freedom of one or more family members. If I were to just describe this entire clip, which you can watch online, I, I didn't want to play any more of it because it's very hard to hear when you don't have words that are put at the bottom to understand what they're saying, because obviously this was just recorded off, recorded off a body cam. But if I were to describe in the most fair way possible, this conversation, I would say that Cuddy is insinuating to Freeman that if she cheated, then she is in danger from the people for whom she cheated for. She insinuates to Freeman that Freeman is a loose end that will need to that will need to be tied up and says that some of this pressure is coming from the federal level. So there we go. We're going to get back to Cuddy on other charges in a second. 
Here is the next set of charges, and these are actually two charges that are often referred to together in this indictment, criminal solicitation and violation of oath by a public officer. Criminal solicitation states that it's unlawful for anyone to solicit, request, command, importune, or otherwise attempt to cause another person to engage in a felony. And violation of oath by a public officer is a public officer commits this offense when they willfully and knowingly violate or swear falsely to the oath set forth in the Georgia Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, Paragraph 5. This oath generally involves swearing the support of their constituents to the United States and Georgia, faithfully performing the duties of office and not improperly using their office for gain. So in the indictment, this is referred to as a solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. This is essentially any time that Donald Trump or anybody in the Trump orbit, all of which are named, by the way, and that's different from the Jack Smith indictment that came down federally. He had a lot of unnamed co-conspirators. They're all named here because Fannie Willis, the district attorney, is going to need to prove that this was a criminal conspiratorial organization. And so several of these conspirators are charged with this for soliciting officials to appoint alternate electors. In Act 112, Trump and Mark Meadows, his chief of staff at the time, are charged with this for the Brad Raffensperger call and Kanye West publicists. Travian Cuddy also gets hit with this for contacting Ruby Freeman. So they are saying that Ruby Freeman, in her role as an election worker, they were asking for her to violate her oath to Georgia. Here's another one. Impersonating a public officer or employee. This is where a person commits the offense of impersonating a public officer or employee when they falsely hold themselves out or impersonate a public officer or an employee or any person authorized by the law to perform a special duty or falsely hold themselves out to be an officer or employee of the state or any political subdivision. And, it has four tests, performs any act purporting to be an official. Two, seeks to arrest or searches any person or searches any place. Three, discharges any official duty or business and four by words or actions represents themselves to be such officer or assumes to act as such officer and employee with the intent to mislead and or cause another to submit to false official authority or otherwise act to the detriment of another. This is what they get all of the alternate slash fake electors salt to taste. They get them all with this one and another count for forgery and false statements in writing, and also filing false documents. So everybody that that was in that, that alternate elector slate and everyone that organized it, they all caught a charge on this. Influencing witnesses. I'll, I'll bet you that you can uh, take a wild guess who got caught with this charge. It's unlawful for any person with the intent to deter a witness from testifying freely, fully, and truthfully to any matter pending in the court. Not only do they get Stephen Lee for attempting to speak to Ruby Freeman, they also get Harrison Floyd, who Lee recruited. Because when he tried to talk to Ruby Freeman, Ruby Freeman didn't want to talk to him because he was white. 
So they get Harrison Floyd of Black Voices for Trump. And then, of course, Cuddy, who eventually did speak with Freeman. So those are the the charges, by and large, from what I was able to read in the 98-page indictment. The big moments are the recruitment of the fake electors, the spreading of the conspiracy. And that's going to be the most controversial part of this because it does run into the idea of free speech. Are you allowed to loudly state that this election was stolen and what burden of proof needs to be met for it to be looked at as unlawful to say it, even to say it to public officials? And then, of course, the Trump Brad Raffensperger call. This is looked at as the coup de grace. They tried a lot of chicanery with a bunch of other people, people lower down the totem pole. The way that this indictment is laid out, especially the RICO charges, they look at it as the mob boss stepped out and had one moment where he let his mask fall and did something illegal with the guy for whom he he needed to convince and he wasn't able to convince. That's a little odd to me because they also narrate through all of this with Donald Trump saying the stuff that he said to Brad Raffensperger. In fact, he was nicer to Brad Raffensperger than in, in the phone call than he was to the state of Georgia in his tweets that are listed here. But still, there we go. That's That's pretty much it. There's not a ton here that was not out in the open. Almost everything that is listed in this had been publicly reported on, including one element of the story that I found to be fascinating. Because when I was at DEF CON this weekend, I saw a fascinating talk about vote hacking. And as it turns out, there is a connection to this story, which is a very important political story. And the indictment that was just filed by way of who else? The Kraken master herself, Sidney Powell. We will get to that in the next segment. But before we leave, let's hear from the man himself. As you might imagine, he has been very busy. Donald Trump, he had the following to say on Truth Social. So the witch hunt continues. 19 people indicted tonight, including the former president of the United States, me, by an out of control and very corrupt district attorney who campaigned and raised money on. I will get Trump. And what about these indictment documents put out today, long before the grand jury even voted and then quickly withdrawn? Sounds rigged to me. Why didn't they indict two and a half years ago? Because they wanted to do it right in the middle of a political campaign. Witch hunt. All right, so let's do a little bit of uh, demystifying here for those of you who are not terminally online, like the former president of the United States. First, these charges were leaked online. (laughs) They were leaked online earlier in the day on the DA's website. They were then pulled back and it appears that they were leaked before the grand jury had voted. Now, Usually these grand juries are just a matter of course. 
So just so you know where that came from. And then comes some of the political strategy here, because these indictments have been political rocket fuel for Donald Trump. He has been liked by more people and raised more money the more that he gets prosecuted. And so he is leaning into this and saying this is weaponized political and Department of Justice malfeasance. And part of what he is pointing to is that why is all of this happening now? Why within six months for stuff that largely in, in the, you know, most of the, the, the stuff that's happened has happened in the last, well, I guess the documents case happened more recently. The New York case happened years and years ago and both the January 6th indictment and this indictment largely centers around stuff that happened two years ago. So why, oh, why does all of it hatch right at the beginning of a campaign season? And surely there will be legal minds that will say, well, it takes a certain amount of time and, you know, you can only move so fast in a criminal investigation, blah, blah, blah. Donald Trump's political argument will be this proves that they are trying to knock me out of this election. This is not about these crimes. This is about piling the charges on so I look to be more corrupt than I am. Will it play? We will see. We read now from the official statement of the Trump campaign. Like Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, deranged Jack Smith, and New York AG Letitia James, Fulton County's Fulton County, Georgia's radical Democrat District Attorney Fannie Willis is a rabid partisan who is campaigning and fundraising on a platform of prosecuting President Trump through these bogus indictments. Ripping a page from crooked Joe Biden's playbook, Willis has strategically stalled her investigation to try and maximally interfere with the 2024 presidential race and damage the dominant Trump campaign. All of these corrupt Democrat attempts will fail. Combined with the intentionally slow-walked investigations by the Biden-Smith goon squads and false charges in New York, the timing of this latest coordinated strike by a biased prosecutor in an overwhelmingly Democrat jurisdiction not only betrays the trust of the American people, but also exposes true motivation driving their fabricated accusations. They could have brought this two and a half years ago, yet they chose to do this for election interference reasons in the middle of Donald Trump's successful campaign. He is not only leading all Republicans by a lot, but he's also leading Joe Biden in almost every poll. President Trump represents the greatest threat to these Democrats' political futures and the greatest hope for America. The legal double standards set against President Trump must end under crooked Joe the, under the crooked Biden cartel, there are no rules for Democrats while Republicans face criminal charges for exercising their First Amendment rights. These activities by Democrat leaders constitute a grave threat to American democracy and are direct attempts to deprive the American people of their rightful choice to cast their vote for president. Call it election interference, election manipulation. It is a dangerous effort by the ruling class to suppress the choice of the people. It is un-American and wrong. They are taking away President Trump's First Amendment right to free speech and the right to challenge a rigged and stolen election that the Democrats do all the time. The ones who should be prosecuted are the ones who created the corruption. President Trump will never give up and will never stop fighting for you as we all work to make America great again in 2024. And in case anything 
is swayed by the idea that Donald Trump, even in the face of all of this, does seem to genuinely continue to believe that the 2020 election was stolen. He wrote this. A large, complex, and detailed but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud, which took place in Georgia, is almost complete and will be presented by me at a major news conference at 11 a.m. on Monday of next week in Bedminster, New Jersey. Based on the results of this, all caps, conclusive report, all charges should be dropped against me and others. There will be a complete exoneration, all caps. They never went after those who rigged the election. They only went after those who fought to find the riggers, all caps, hard R. I think politically this, I mean, I said this, I think after the second indictment that, that this might end the primary. I think it's hard. It's hard for anybody on the Republican side, considering the will of the Republican electorate to believe that they are being railroaded, that the voice of the Republican is being railroaded by an out of control justice department. It's, it's hard to run against Jesus when he's on the cross. Like if for the audience that is going to be deciding this nomination, you know, not only does this give Trump an answer to why now, it also, in the eyes of the Republican electorate, in my opinion, continues to justify what was his greatest failing, which is that he lost, that he's a loser, that he, for, that he, that he wouldn't stop complaining about it and whining about it and still keeps complaining and whining about it. I believe it was that pattern of behavior that represented the best course of action to beat him in a primary. Call him a loser. Say he lost in 2020, that the Republicans lost bad in 2022, and they don't have the Senate because of the lunatics that he chose, that he cut out of his cloth. And if you take that off the table by saying, no, the news story is he's going to go to jail. And by the numbers, that's the case. 81% of Republicans, and this is in June after the second indictment, believed that these charges are politically motivated. And I would imagine that that number is just as high, if not higher today. Well, then that point, which you could exploit for political gain from on the Republican side, is kind of gone. It's yesterday's battle. The new battle is Donald Trump or somebody, probably Donald Trump, needs to become president of the United States or else the Republican Party will be criminalized. That, to me, is the mood of the Republican electorate. And if that's the case, there is nobody but Chungus that will fit the bill. After the break, the one part of this story that we have not yet talked about, it involves election interference, real, imagined, and everything in between. It's right after this.
Oh, baby, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Now's the time. <laughs> Come on in, friends. The water's fine because when the news heats up, you need more more px3 you need two bonus episodes each and every week and that's what you get at takepoliticsseriously.com sign up at the three dollar level get the two bonus episodes each and every week but let's get to your update here is a list as far as we know of who has signed the pledge the pledge is for anybody to get up on that debate stage on August 23rd on Fox News. We are running out of ways to make this a primary. This is probably the first of the last. And so to do it, you got to sign a pledge. So pledge says you are going to support the nominee. That means the anti-Trump people have to sign it. That means Trump would theoretically have to sign it and say that he would have to support the person that would beat him. Here is who has signed it. Chris Christie says he intends to sign it and not honor it. (laughs) Uh, uh, But only after an RNC review of all of his data. He has not signed it yet, but he intends to. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed it. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley signed it. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott signed it. Tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who wrapped Eminem at the Iowa State Fair this weekend signed it. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum signed it. Former Vice President Mike Pence says he intends to sign. Former Arkansas Governor Asia Hutchinson, Ace uh, Ace uh, Hutchinson, intends to sign it if he is eligible to make the debate stage. And Miami Mayor Francis Suarez says he intends to sign it if the requirements are met. Here are the two people who have not signed or expressed intent to sign. Donald Trump, the draw, the main event. He is going to be the one who's all the eyes are on if he is going to debate. He has said not only has he no intention of signing, he also has limited intention to go to the debate. And former Texas Representative Will Hurd. I don't think he's going to make the stage. So he's saying not only am I not signing, I'm protesting the debate because they're rigging it. So I don't get up on stage, to which I say, word heard. On Tuesday, Hunter Biden's lead defense lawyer, Chris Clark, petitioned a federal judge to exit an ongoing case concerning tax and gun offenses. This decision was based on the potential that he could be called as a witness in the upcoming proceedings. This move is notable given its timing. It's been closely followed following Biden enlisting another attorney who was representing him on the tax and gun charges to represent him broadly with the Department of Justice. And that's Abby Lowell, smartest man in Washington, for all the loyal littles. This hints at Biden's shifting strategy towards a more confrontational public defense. That's what Abby Lowell is known for. He has been connected to some of the highest profile legal cases in Washington, bar none. He is somebody whose name comes up a lot. Last week, the spotlight on the case intensified when Attorney General Merrick Garland promoted U.S. Attorney for Delaware David Weiss to the role of special counsel for this investigation, a case Weiss has been involved with since 2018. This was meant with resounding jeers 
from Republicans who already don't trust Weiss and don't understand why somebody could be named special counsel from inside the Department of Justice. Usually, you get named special counsel from outside the Department of Justice. That's what makes you special. But I guess Merrick Garland just thinks David Weiss is special, which, you know, is kind of heartwarming. Chris Clark, who has been Biden's chief defense counsel and has represented him during plea deal talks, mentioned that his withdrawal became imperative due to the recent turns in the case. Clark's potential role as a witness stems from anticipated disputes over the drafting and negotiation of the plea and diversion agreements. Delaware's attorney regulations prohibit lawyers from representing a case in which they might be essential witnesses. These events have underscored the uncertainties for Biden as the previously discussed plea agreement, which included probationary terms for two tax misdemeanors and a diversionary agreement for the gun-related felony, dissolved into a turbulent July court session. There was a divide between prosecutors and Biden's representation over whether or not the agreement marked the end of DOJ's investigation, with Biden's legal team claiming that the DOJ backtracked on the gun charges diversionary agreement. Abby Lowell was on Face the Nation on Sunday, saying that it is his belief that the diversionary agreement still holds, that it has been signed and filed, and that that is not affected by the fact that the plea deal didn't go through. Like we mentioned, that means a more confrontational strategy going forward. This is a bit of a political headache for the White House, because they have said that Abby Lowell was not going to be involved in the DOJ stuff. Now he's involved in the DOJ stuff. Them's the breaks. And finally, sound the klaxons in Tallahassee. It finally happened. Ron DeSantis is not the unquestioned, impeccable number two in this race, at least when it comes to New Hampshire. A new Emerson poll has Donald Trump at a commanding 49%, Chris Christie at 9%, and Ron DeSantis at 8 Tim Scott at 6 That makes Chris Christie the honorary second banana that is getting blown out by 40 points to Trump. It makes Ron DeSantis getting blown out by 41, but... For a campaign that has retooled and rebooted and restarted and rejiggered itself several times over the last month, the fact that the numbers keep melting ain't good. And what I've said to you guys on this show repeatedly, I don't believe that the DeSantis campaign has been run particularly well. But what I would, what I, what I've continued to say is that. You know, you, you normally when a campaign is failing, you see other campaigns start to take that support. And we had not seen that. Now we've seen it, at least in New Hampshire. Obviously, this is a very razor thin margin by which uh, Chris Christie has uh, overtaken Ron DeSantis. But still, not great news for DeSantis heads. And that is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go. $3 level. Guys, this is the time. (laughs) I mean, I know I say this all the time. I'm going to say it more going forward. But you are going to miss stuff because we are getting into the period. We didn't even really have a show 
where we talked about the fact that there's a Hunter Biden special counsel. I had to talk about that on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition that came out uh, on Monday. So, I mean, guys, seriously, we're not going to be able, I'm going to be getting emails from you guys saying, why didn't you talk about meh? Well, guess what? It's because meh happened either over the weekend or in time for the Thursday episode and not the Friday episode. That's just it. The only way you can protect yourself is takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 level. That is three slim dollars a week. Price of a cup of coffee. If you would pay me a cup of coffee once a week to sit in your car and tell you about all this, well, then it's the deal to make. Takepoliticsseriously.com. All right. I didn't want to talk about this in this episode. I, I did not want to talk about this until I could bring you guys a full episode on it. And that continues to be my goal because I, 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 I believe it's an important enough story that I need to separate it from the sturm and drong of the politics food fight of the day. Unfortunately for me, the politics food fight of the day has now splashed onto this story. And I think it's important that you guys know the broad strokes of it before I can tell it more fully. So one of the charges or several of the charges stem from one incident that happened in Georgia after the runoff elections and after the January 6th riot. It all takes place in a little place called Coffee County, Georgia, 200 miles southeast of Atlanta. Act 33, the first count of this indictment, says that Sidney Powell entered into an agreement with a forensics firm in Fulton County to audit election results, not only in Georgia, but also throughout America. The indictment goes on to say that that relationship led to an unlawful breach of election equipment in Coffee County. Now, I say all that so I can say this. The people that went into that office were looking for proof that election machines can be hacked in Georgia. And I am here to tell you that based on my personal opinion from looking at documentation and a report that I saw the authors talk at length about at DEFCON, I believe that voting machines can be hacked in Georgia. Say that again. Voting machines can be hacked in Georgia. The specific machines that they have in Georgia, there is not only a way to hack them, there is a way to hack them at scale that would avoid any detection in a hand recount. So... Let's get into some of the details of this case, and then I'll tell you how they connect. So the indictment argues that Scott Hall of Sullivan Strickler LLC flew to Coffee County on January 7th at the behest of Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell says she did not have anything to do with this, and she's hit with perjury charges in this indictment because of it. There, 
Hall was met by local Republican Party officials and was allowed over the next two days to copy data and software from the Dominion machines. This earned them several charges, including interference with the primaries and elections, unlawful possession of ballots, computer theft, computer trespassing, computer invasion of privacy, and conspiracy to defraud the state along with conspiracy to commit election fraud. Now, this story came to light when one of the people involved called a nonpartisan group that's been suing the state of Georgia for years, alleging that two sets of voting machines that that were in use and are now in use can both be hacked. It was their legal push that got Diebold machines taken out of Georgia and Dominion machines put into Georgia. The plaintiffs were then granted a copy of the current Dominion voting machines and two different cybersecurity professors were able to prove that they could hack them at scale using commercially available equipment. The hack would survive a hand recount and only be vulnerable in the few moments when a voter took a slip of paper from the machine to a poll worker. And here's how it worked. All of the machines in a county are, they know what to do because an election definition is set up from a master machine for which you take a USB drive and you plug it in to all the other machines that they now load up and know what the various races are, what the candidates are, blah, 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 blah. It was demonstrated in this report that if you hack the master machine, and it is demonstrable, that that means without access to all the other voting machines, you can create malware that can affect the votes. And here's the insidious part. When you vote on these machines, you get a slip of paper that you then bring to the election worker. The only thing that carries the data for your vote is a QR code that is on that slip of paper. Now, all the choices that you made are also listed there. But this malware, and this was uh, replicated in a fake election by these researchers, they were able to show that if the QR code scans with the information that is, is printed on there, it will register whatever it wants and it can mismatch the, it can mismatch the, the names on the slip. So the only way that you would be able to detect that this had happened is if the voter looks at their sheet of paper and notices that somebody they didn't vote for is on it. If they don't, then that means when a hand recount is taken, all they're doing is counting the names on the ballot slip. So a hand recount would not catch this particular exploit. National organizations 
looked at this report, which happened in 2021, and said these were vulnerabilities that need to be patched immediately. And so Dominion wrote a patch that would, at least specifically, block this exploit, or at least they say they would block it, going forward. The researchers that published this hack said that they have not gotten access to the patch, so they don't know for sure. There is a lot, and we will get to this in the longer episode we're going to do about this. A lot of security by obscurity going on in the election voting world. It is something that I think is a bad idea, especially when you're talking about something that requires public buy-in. But you do you, Dominion Chew. It should be mentioned, and we'll be fair, that a federal agency has, or at least an agency that's essentially a federal agency, MITRE, has challenged the initial report that was put out, essentially saying that the hacks that they listed were possible, but not realistic in a real-world scenario, because it would require people getting in to county offices and hacking that master computer, which is a little hard to swallow that that's not realistic when that's exactly what happened in this indictment. And at DEF CON this weekend, the talk that I watched were the authors of the initial report issuing a rebuttal to that rebuttal. And again, I want to get everybody on the phone. I want them to tell their own story because I I do think this is something that as we get into this world of bouncing the political football back and forth, Democrats upset in Ohio in 2004, Republicans upset in 2020 about the voting machines. We need to get serious about election security because without it, there are major, major, major consequences that we are already seeing in terms of erosion to trust. I'm not against technology being used. I am against technology being used when people are being absolutely ignorant about patching these machines and believing that these hacks are not possible. By the way, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, and I will speculate here, because he doesn't want to indulge people to believe that this or any election in Georgia is anything other than the most safe, has said that he will not use that new Dominion patch until after the 2024 election, which, in my opinion, is absolutely inexcusable. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you'd like to send me an email, which again, Georgia lawyers only, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter, PX3 tweets for the show, Justin R. Young for me. My Twitch is px3live.com, letter P, letter X, number three, by the way. Uh, I'll be live on Wednesday, so if you're up early, Come uh, come find me. Find this podcast, px3podcast.com. If you'd like to support me, 
the one-time donation. You can do so. PayPal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Edwin, Andres, C. Garcia, Matthew T., Matt, John Gross, El Basso, John, Craig Potts, MC Radio, Unsafe DB, Level Knee, Meister, Amanda, Yield, Pinball Shop, Edwin, who's new? What's up, Edwin? DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, Dr. G, Niels, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris, Arzlanian, Blue Front, and the Lenina DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank, got abducted. Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Gen A-L-D-L-D-L-D. Really? Chopper, Andrew and Joshua. It's all there for you, friends. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. So the plan right now is to do a Tim Scott, Doug Burgum double feature for debate prep because we weren't able to get into debate prep for this episode. I'm going to assume that those will be shorter. I don't know if you guys are sick enough to want (laughs) two full segments to do a full segment each on Doug Burgum and Tim Scott. If, if, if you guys do exist if you guys are that big of sickos, <laughs> please hit me up at Justin R. Young on X. Let me know. I'm that sick in the head that I really want you to do longer segments on Tim Scott and Doug Bergham. But unless there is a, uh, you know, on, on our discord, bit.ly slash jury discord, J-U-R-Y-D-I-C or D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Unless there is a public uprising for me to do that. Then I'll do one segment where I cover both of them. And then I would love to. I, I've been meaning to do a segment on Devin Archer and now this evolving Hunter Biden stuff for a while now, for at least like a week and a half. So I want to do that on Friday episode. That's the plan. So hopefully we do that. And then, of course, if you are a, you know, $3 tier, then you're going to hear more on Thursday. Because God knows what will happen. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>
Dog and Pony Show Audio.